the somatic work that we do, you know, the, the reason that we bring the body into this is because healing trauma isn't just about talking about it. Um, you know, the trauma narratives are great and it's good to be able to share, but it's also about creating a safe and supportive environment where we can explore how our body regulates, how it gets back to a state of safety and connection, and which state we might be stuck in. You know, where those energies, uh, energies of our body, of our system are stuck, and how we can feel into that more. Because our, uh, we have a lot of research now that shows that you know our emotional experience isn't just stored in our memories and our brain, but it's also stored in our body. Welcome to Curated Conversation, a podcast discussing real-world issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with individuals and companies to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. Today for Curated Conversations, Episode 17, I'm joined by Tristan Muhammad. Tristan Muhammad is a registered psychotherapist and the founder of Life Transitions Therapy. Tristan is on a mission to help adult survivors of emotionally unavailable parents reignite the spark of joy in themselves, their career, and their relationships. Drawing from his own experience as a trauma survivor and first-generation Canadian growing up in a multi-religious family, Tristan has learned to understand the complexity of living between worlds and the struggles to find meaning and purpose. This personal understanding has fueled in commitment to walking alongside his clients in their unique journey of growth. Prior to embarking on his journey as a therapist, Tristan left behind a successful career as a lawyer. Driven by his true calling, he delved into a journey of self-discovery, living in Buddhist monasteries around the world, engaging in therapy, and cultivating nourishing relationships that brought forth his own healing. Specializing in anxiety, depression, trauma, burnout, and spiritual distress, Tristan works at the intersection of psychotherapy and spirituality. Through an insight-based approach grounded in relational embodiment, he empowers clients to reconnect with their inner truths, forge paths aligned with their passions, and cultivate the supportive relationships that they deserve. Welcome, Tristan. We're so excited to have you. Thanks, Shaliza. I'm excited too. I just have to say, I got chills when you said episode 17. I'm like, how, how is this here already? Episode 17. Like, I know you were in episode one. I forgot to tell the listeners that, that you were in episode one of Curated Conversations now, I guess, two years ago. Yeah. Which is, uh, yeah, time is flying. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for the podcast. I mean, it's it's quite an achievement, quite an achievement for sure. Thank you. And, and we've come full circle. So uh, Tristan, tell our listeners a little bit about you. And if you can share a little bit about your career trajectory uh, from law to psychotherapy and how your journey of self-discovery led you to your own healing. Yeah. Um, I mean, like you said, you know, I'm a first generation Canadian, a person of color, Buddhist practitioner, now a, a qualifying registered psychotherapist and a, a business owner. Um, you know, I own a practice called Life Transitions Therapy. And I guess if I had to summarize what I do now in one sentence, I would say that I help highly stressed adults rebuild their relationships and uh, reconnect with their spirituality and their, their meaning and purpose in life. Um, I have a background as a lawyer and did my master's in spiritual care and psychotherapy and um, my training in, in a hospital setting as, as a spiritual intern, as well as in a counseling center as a therapist intern. But I think my, you know, on paper, it, it sounds straightforward, but my journey from um, law to psychotherapy was anything but linear. So yeah, I, I went to law school in 2013, and I, I had the desire of building a career of service where I could really help others. But the reality is there's a lot of pressures in law school. It's a small environment, high stress, and catered to a lot of competitiveness. And it played on a lot of my insecurities and my doubts. And to, to top that off, I had debt, you know, student loans. I left school with like $90,000 in debt. So, you know, the decision just to, to take a job that felt meaningful wasn't really there for me. Um, so I felt the pressures to go into private practice, uh, ended up working in family law and civil litigation. But even prior to that, like I had an inkling that I didn't want to do a traditional legal career. I just didn't yet have the means or the trust in myself to really make a change. Uh, so for a while, I was working in private practice, and 
eventually I just knew, you know, this isn't for me. This isn't what I want. I'm not really aligned with my values. So I, I searched for quite some time. I quit my job and I was um, kind of on a shoestring budget, with, which in hindsight, I would say probably wasn't the best decision, but it was enough to get by until I ended up finding a nonprofit that was doing justice education and legal mentorship. Uh, and they were willing to take a chance on me. Um, this is uh, someone we both know, Brittany Twist, who's an amazing, amazing leader. And so I ran their legal mentorship and human rights programs for a while, and then scaled up in responsibility to a, a bigger nonprofit organization. But, you know, when I eventually decided I wanted to go back to school, it had been a deeply emotional, spiritual, therapeutic process of, I would say, two, three years to get there. Um, I was looking back at my my application to the program, and I had reached out uh, nearly six years prior and left it and didn't touch it for another six years. So it took me that long to really get to the point that I said, okay, I feel I'm ready for this. And a large part of what drew me to go back to school, to retrain, to do this clinical work was my own challenges. So I, I am a survivor of childhood trauma. I experienced abuse, intergenerational trauma systemic oppression, racism, racial violence. Um, so at a young age, I kind of learned to fake being okay to get by. Um, I learned to mistrust my own instincts, seek praise from people who weren't emotionally available. And so in hindsight, you know, looking back now, when I look on even this decision to go to law school, I can see how it was mixed with many things. Yeah, some of it was this genuine desire to want to help other people. And part of it was, you know, my own needs for achievement because I was seeking safety. I was seeking praise, comfort, affection in things that helped me get by previously, but ultimately were no longer working. So, you know, I think for a lot of people like myself who grow up in those invalidating environments, achievement, success can sometimes be our our, um, our outlet, our way of having a safe space where we're, we're getting some of these needs that aren't being met. So even prior to allowing myself to really entertain that possibility of, hey, I might actually want to become a therapist, uh, you know, was doing some of this inner work of my own, seeing my own therapist for many years, um, you know, spiritual work of living in Buddhist monasteries and getting to know my own emotions, my own needs more, uh, really reparenting that inner child. And I think as I started to see those changes in myself, in my relationships, my friendships, um, you know, my family life. I started to really feel into that possibility of, hey, maybe, maybe you know, all of this pain that I was carrying around can actually be transformed into something meaningful, both in my own life, but then also to serve other people. So, yeah, it's it's been a long journey for sure. Um, and I'm sure when I look back at this conversation ten years from now, when you're on episode two hundred and something, you know, I'll be saying, I'll be saying to myself, <laughs> uh, you know, there's more things I didn't even realize at the time. Absolutely. And I think that's a fabulous kind of journey that you've been on. And it takes a lot of courage to also listen to yourself and follow the path that feels right. And I know we've talked about that a lot. And so on that journey, what then inspired you to start Life Transitions Therapy? Yeah, it was definitely a scary process. So courage for sure. I, you know, it, it's hard for me to see it at the time, but fear is often in the car with me. So I will definitely acknowledge that. Um, but I think it was a mixture of some some practical considerations and an, an assessment and evaluation of what's important to me and how I want to be of service to others. One of the things I'll say that really motivated me is that I had a clear intention even before going back to retrained for this career path of what I wanted. So before applying to the master's program, I, I sat down and I, I did a very intentional values exercise. And maybe for, for listeners, um, we can put something in the show notes, um, uh, you know, a sample of one of these that I worked through that I found very helpful. So, you know, I knew things like, like um, compassion, empathy were at the core of my, my values. Um, but I, I also thought through how will I nourish myself in that process? And what will that look like? Um, how can I live a life of service where, where I'm not compromising my values as well? Because what ultimately, what do I want to model for my clients? You know, clients like your listeners, they're, they're really perceptive and they can tell if we're not taking care of ourselves. And I knew I wanted to model good self-care. I wanted to model authenticity and you know, empathy, compassion. 
And so for me, I knew I needed to have a lifestyle where I was earning a livable wage. I had time for family and friends, you know, space to withdraw into solitude and contemplative time in nature. And uh, if you haven't figured out already, I'm a bit type A, so I over-research, over-plan, over-prepare. It's something that I, that I just know is a part of me. And so even when starting this, this career shift, I was looking into it, like, what does it, uh, this path look like? And a lot of clinics, a lot of community counseling centers, employee benefit plans, the reality is they pay really low and it isn't enough to make a livable wage without seeing 20 to 25 plus clients a week. And that doesn't include things like your administrative time, your time charting, prepping, undergoing additional training, um, you know, supervision, let alone self-care. And so all of these things behind the scenes that we have to do to really show up to be good therapists, to be, you know, human beings that aren't burnt out really, especially when we're hearing and receiving really heavy stories. Um, you know, I, I knew that I had to have a work-life balance where there was space for that. And the, the other piece about, about starting my own practice was that I've done and continue to do a lot of work unpacking my own identity, uh, you know, my racial identity, my gender identity, and the ways that colonization have affected myself, my ancestors, and, and how it's enabled, um, you know, real issues of trauma in my own family and my own life. So it led me to know really clearly my worth. And to know that, you know, burning myself out, taking on a huge caseload is selling myself short. It's not, it's not my worth at the end of the day. I, I have a spiritual teacher and he says, compassion without wisdom is like a bird with one wing. You only fly in circles. So I didn't want to be flying in circles. I think that's, that's the practical piece that I mentioned. But the other piece is really, you know, how do I show up for my clients? So being able to charge a livable rate in my own practice means that I, I am able to see half the number of clients in a week. So rather than that 25 to 30 clients, I'm seeing 10 to 12 clients a week. And the difference that really makes is that I'm, I'm able to give my clients real meaningful attention. I'm able to create tailored, you know, work plans and goals for uh, tailored care plans for their specific goals, you know, what's meeting their needs, as opposed to just like a cookie cutter approach to therapy. And one of the reasons I think that is so important is because we actually have a lot of evidence about what works in therapy. So there's a, a lot nowadays we hear about like the evidence-based approach and CBT is evidence-based, cognitive behavioral therapy or DBT, dialectical behavior therapy is evidence-based. But more than any one approach, um, there's one factor that's the single biggest outcome for success in therapy. Can, can you guess what it is, Shaliza? The most uh, successful approach to therapy? No, the one factor that's the most consistent predictor of success, regardless of what approach you use. I would say consistency. That's a big part of it, for sure. Consistency is a big part. It's actually the therapeutic alliance. It's the degree of trust oh, that you okay. have with the person you're working with and the degree that you feel aligned with them, that you're working towards the same goal, the same outcome. So think about it, you know, if you, if you go into your doctor, right, you have a situation where you come in, your doctor is super rushed, you didn't feel heard or listened to before you even finished, you know, describing your symptoms, they had an action plan in mind, they're telling you, I'm going to prescribe you this medication. Like, how, how do you feel in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. So it's about kind of building the relationship and working towards a path together. That's what I'm hearing, that relationality. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so that, that is actually one of the most consistent predictors of success in therapy. So, so for me, starting my practice, having this, you know, work-life balance and being able to show up, it's not just about, you know, me and feeling good. That's a big piece of it, but it's also about being able to really fully listen to people, to authentically show up in those relationships, because many people haven't had that. You know, many people haven't had people in their lives where they can sit down with them mm -hmm. for an hour and it's all about them. It's all about being heard, being seen. And the difference that then makes is, is, you know, when people start to believe in therapy, that their emotional world matters, their thoughts matter, their values matter, it starts to matter to them too. And it also starts mm -hmm. to matter in their relationships. So yeah, that, I say that's the biggest reason that I started my practice is to, to really be able to, to give my clients full attention, to value them in the way that they deserve to be valued. So thank you for telling me about life transitions therapy and, you know, your relational approach. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about your unique approach to therapy. What is spirituality integrated psychotherapy? 
and how can it combat discriminatory and culturally insensitive modes of therapy? And sort of what is the importance of this culturally relevant and responsive therapy? Yeah, that's that's a big question. <laughs> I think to engage in a conversation on spiritually integrated therapy in a meaningful way, I think we just like first have to have a little bit of a lay of the land. Um, so there's a Stats Canada report, and it shows that the proportion of non-religious Canadians has doubled in the last 20 years. So folks that identify as Christian are still the norm, I would say, at 53%, but that's shrunk, and there's a growth in in non-religious Canadians, and it's primarily the younger demographic, so millennials, Gen Zers, which at the surface would make it seem that you know religion and spirituality are becoming less important. But um, a Stats Canada report doesn't give an option for people who identify as spiritual but not religious, what we call SBNR. Um, so they're not affiliated with a particular religious group, but they have spiritual beliefs. And there's a 2015 study that actually found that nearly 40% of Canadians identify as SBNR. So the surprising thing about that is, is the largest group, is, uh, and, and the group that's growing the quickest, is the demographic of millennials. That combined with an additional 24% who identify as re- both religious and spiritual, and another 10% who identify as religious, um, it means that there is nearly 76% of the, the population that has either some sort of religious or spiritual view. So, you know, there's a set of values, beliefs, perspectives that's structured by their faith or by their spirituality. Um, and this is consistent with, you know, similar trends happening in the States where now there's about 75 folks who either identify as spiritual but not religious or religious or some combination of both. And um, there's some prominent people in the field like uh, Kenneth Pargamut. He, he really focuses on this as part of a larger social trend towards deinstitutionalization, individualization, globalization. But really, you know, what we could summarize this as is, is we're still seeing the fallout from religion, but we're seeing that faith and spirituality still play a huge role in people's lives. And, you know, this can be things like beliefs related to our relationship to the land or to other people, like what we view as sacred. And it's not always things like overt, you know, like religious objects or practices or observances, but it can sometimes even be the value we place on things like love, kindness, compassion, generosity, and and how that structures our worldview. You know, the the trend shows this is still very much a part of not only how we make meaning in our lives, but how we cope with things, how we deal with the successes, the failures, issues like anxiety and depression. Like, how do we make sense of these? And so, you know, why is a therapist sitting here talking about spirituality with you? Imagine going to a doctor. I want to use a medical analogy again, because, you know, as therapists, we are regulated healthcare professionals. Imagine going to a doctor and they said to you, you can talk to me about your bodily issues, but if you discuss anything related to your heart, I can't discuss it with you. I'm not going to assess for it. I'm not going to treat it. I'm going to ignore it because I wasn't trained to look at the heart. Um, So, you know, I'm not checking your blood pressure. I'm not referring you to a cardiologist. Like if a doctor did that, a lot of people are going to die. And so, you know, imagine now ignoring such a central component of what keeps you going, what keeps you alive, what gives you meaning and purpose in therapy. Many people stall out. So, you know, to leave spirituality, the heart of, you know, a person out of the therapy room, um, you know, if I would do that as a therapist, it would fail to align myself with one of the most crucial parts of how we are making meaning out out of the world and out of what's going on around us. And there's also a flip side, you know, there's a dark side to this too, which is that for many people, organized religion is a large part of what causes their distress. It's what's what's contributed to some of, of their, their current trauma, you know, particularly with queer and trans folks that I work with, uh, they've experienced spiritual abuse. So, so religion or spirituality has been used as a method of control to restrict them from being able to, to, honor and hold parts of their identity, parts of their emotions that's really valid to them. So to leave that piece out too, to not talk about the role spirituality plays in that, you know, it, it, it um, masks some of these issues, I think, as well. And these issues, you know, they can be painted as really binary in the media, like 
it's either good or bad religion or, you know, good or bad trans person, for example. But it's really complex. Like when I, for example, trans folks that I've worked with, one of the things that I see is that their relationship to that spirituality as they begin to heal is is complicated. It's difficult to navigate because even though their religion was a source of this pain for them, source of this trauma, it was also a place that they felt belonging, acceptance. It was a place where, you know, they had certain values or beliefs that were a part of the religion that they respected, even though there was other parts that were used to control and manipulate. And so I think, you know, going beyond these kind of binary ideas of, of talking about spirituality, but being able to hold the complexity and discuss that in session is so crucial to people healing. Yeah. And so when we talk about this idea of combating discrimination and culturally insensitive modes of therapy, you know, for our listeners out there who may have experienced those, what are some of those types of modes of therapy and maybe how might they be harmful so we can recognize that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think one thing is, is you know, part, part of why it's really difficult for clients too is there is a power imbalance. You know, we as therapists um, have a very privileged position and that does create a bit of a power imbalance. So I, I think one of the biggest things is, is and, you know, maybe this is something we can talk about later too, is, is around these values exercises doing some of this before seeing a therapist and asking questions of a therapist. You know, I know, I know it's not easy when you're in a position where you're, you're seeking a therapist, especially if it's for the first time and you just want someone to support, you know, especially if it's an issue that you've been dealing with for a long time, but asking really critical questions, you know, asking what is your experience with my issues? Um, you know, I, I am, for example, a Buddhist or a Muslim person or I'm spiritual, but not religious. Are you comfortable talking about spirituality? You know, do you have familiarity dealing with things like spiritual abuse, for example? Because I, I think by asking those questions, it gives you an opportunity to vet the therapist. And that, for me, that's always the way I use consultation sessions. It's not just about me deciding if I'm comfortable working with this client. It's really so the client can get a feel of if they can work with me. Because it goes back to, you know, what we talked about earlier, that the therapeutic alliance, whether we're aligned, is one of the biggest predictors of whether we're going to have success. And speaking of that alliance, what is the importance, do you think, of culturally relevant and responsive therapy? I know you'd mentioned one example of queer and trans folks and, and the way it's important to kind of build that spirituality into it and recognize that relationship. But maybe just speaking a bit more to the importance of that culturally relevant and responsive therapy. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I'm glad you touched on that, too, because that, that is a big piece. Um, I can share, you know, when, when I was looking for a therapist for the first time, I was dealing with some relationship issues, and I knew I wanted a male therapist, but they were, first of all, very few male therapists. Secondly, very few male therapists of color out there. And so um, when I started opening up about some of my trauma I have a lot of shame and fear and hesitation about opening up about the discrimination and the racism I faced because it was a part of me that wasn't sure if my therapist would understand. You know, shame is something that that's a whole topic we could get into on its own, I think. And, you know, I, I know you, you talk about that a lot in your work as well, Shaliza. Um, but, you know, for, for racialized communities, shame is so embedded and so multi-layered and um, it makes it difficult to open up and trust people sometimes. So sometimes having a, a therapist who who um, adopts a culturally appropriate and responsive approach, which we can talk a bit about what that looks like, um, uh, helps. It helps make it easier to start talking about that shame. But I, I just want to be clear and preface this. You know, I don't think that clients can only work with therapists who are from a similar cultural background. In fact, I think the reality is a lot of good work can happen when therapists don't look like us, don't sound like us, aren't from the same background as well. Because, um, you know, just to give you an example, I, both in hospital and in my private practice, I've worked with women who are victims of domestic violence or abuse. And one of the things I always do in these situations is acknowledge and check in on the gender dynamics regularly to see how it's affecting their sense of safety. But um, one of the things I've seen happen is by having this trusting relationship with a man who, you know, isn't isn't taking advantage of them, isn't in an abusive relationship with them, uh, it helps them learn to trust again. So I do think, you know, even as racialized individuals, there's a value in having therapists that aren't from the same background. But that said, the the one of the biggest factors that I actually believe 
to be at play is whether you have choice, whether you have autonomy in making that decision for who it is you want to seek out. And, and you know, choice has to be meaningful choice. So it can't just be, yeah, you can theoretically call, you know, any therapist, but there's factors around choice that are systemic, you know, things like the accessibility and, um, you know, fees and affordability, but also, you know, how many male therapists of color are there out there? There's, there's not a lot. And so it does restrict choice. That's a reality of it. But I think being able to have open conversations about that with clients puts them in the driver's seat where they can decide, is this a therapist I really want to work with? And I think that leads to, to starting off on a good foot when it comes to, to culturally responsive therapy. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you've been speaking about that. And to build on that as a racialized person, what are some of the stigmas that might come up for folks maybe leading them to either seek a racialized professional or not? Um, and how do you address that in your practice when people have stigmas um, either that are ra- like related to their own cultural ethnic identity or, um, you know, stigmas related to gender? How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, stigma for racialized communities around seeking support is still such a big issue. Like the, the, the narrative, especially around things like trauma is changing. And, you know, I'm sure we can get into that more. Um, but still, most of that narrative is um, dominated by people in positions of privilege and power. And so it's difficult because in these communities where there still is a lot of shame around mental health, mental illness, um, that comes from broader systemic factors, it's difficult. It's difficult to step out of that and to seek support. And that, that stigma, you know, shows up in, in, I would say, three main spheres. So there's, there's the social stigma, you know, the, the attitudes and disapprovals from people around us. So um, one that I really heard a lot growing up was, um, you know, men have to be tough. Um, stop being weak. Don't be a baby. Don't be a girl. That's a whole other one. Don't be a girl. We could unpack, you know, why, why is it that being a girl is a bad thing? Um, but that's, you know, the social stigma. And that, that gets internalized. It becomes a self-stigma. So then we speak to ourselves the way we other people have spoken to us. So when we start feeling hurt, sad, overwhelmed, we tell ourselves the same things. I just have to suck it up. You know, I, I, can, I can get through this on my own. You know, I don't need to talk about this. And both of these, the social and self-stigma, both contribute to and are influenced by the cultural stigma, the way that our culture deals with and talks about mental illness. And so for me, the, the way that I try to address that in practice, and I, you know, I can't say I have a perfect answer because these are big issues. These are issues that are, that are cultural, that are systemic. Um, but there's three things that I try and bring in. So I always try to adopt a systemic lens. For me, the, the problem that we're looking at, if someone comes to me and they're experiencing anxiety, they're overwhelmed, you know, I never look at it as being just about that person but rather to start to get curious about how did this issue develop within the context of a broader system. Anger is a great example. You know, maybe uh, for many colored people, um, you know, there's, uh, there's this idea that if you feel hurt, you shouldn't show anger. Um, I see this, you know, black people, you don't want to be an angry black man or an angry black woman because that's a label that gets put on you. And so you internalize, I can't express my hurt and my anger. And for, so for me, when someone comes, I don't just look at, look at it around, why is this anger stuck? I look at it as, how is this part of a bigger system? How is this part of a family system where the narrative may have been, don't share that with people? And then part of a broader societal system that causes a family to internalize some of this. So just being able to, to turn a, an eye to that, a conversation to that, it helps take some of that stigma off so the person feels less shame, like, oh, this isn't my fault that I've developed this relationship to anger. This was a coping mechanism. This is a way of getting by of surviving. You know, the other, the other pieces is doing this, these values exploration with people because part of culturally responsive therapy is not making assumptions, you know, not assuming that I know my client's values. Um, so just because they might come from the same cultural background, racialized background as me, you know, doesn't mean that I know what their lived experience was like. So I always, um, work in opportunities to talk about values or even do value exercises so that we can start to talk about what is really important for this person. Because if I know what their values are, then we're working towards change that's aligned with those values. And you know, I can give you a really concrete example of this. Um, 
I had a client who's trying to fix a parent who's emotionally manipulating. And in my head, you know, I'm thinking, oh gosh, you don't see the signs? Like they're just using you to satisfy your own needs. You've got to get out of that. But for this client, this client really values family and community. And for me, you know, autonomy is something I value. So if I'm projecting my own values onto them and saying autonomy is the most important thing, I'm missing the fact that any solution for this client has to involve family and community. Now, what that looks like, we may not know yet, and that's something we work together to find out. But aligning myself with those values means the client is going to be happy with the outcome. They're not going to end up in a situation where they they feel like they're working against their therapist in addition to everyone else in their life that's not understanding them. That's really interesting, Tristan. I wondered how you deal with that because it's natural as humans to have our own opinions and our own belief systems. So how do you kind of stay neutral in those moments? I mean, I really, I think it's important to highlight what you said about recognizing that not all folks from one culture are going to have the same idea or same values, right? Acknowledging and recognizing those differences and those specific cultural differences that do exist among individuals. But how do you sort of separate and keep that relational approach without sort of putting your own values on someone else? Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of our training as therapists. um, And a lot of it comes down to recognizing when our own narratives, our own stories are getting triggered um, and what that feels like in the body. Because I do a lot of body work, somatic work. Um, So for me, you know, I have sensations that I know and maps out, oh, this tension in my chest that I can pause internally and ask myself, is this the client or is this me? And, you know, if it's that narrative, that immediate reaction, that trigger kind of thought, oh, no, it's, you know, this has to happen. That's usually me. It's usually about me and not the client. So I think getting, starting to get curious about our own internal worlds, our own lived experiences, what kind of narratives from the past are showing up and what that feels like in our body. You know, when we, when we encounter someone that we leave and we're feeling like, oh, it's so irritating. Does that seem familiar? Have you met someone like that before? Does that feeling in your body feel familiar? Because I think what that allows us to do is really, we call it bracketing, where we're able to kind of bracket off our own story and still be present to what is happening within the moment. And, you know, it's not to say that that um, our story doesn't matter, but just what it does, it allows us to, this feeds into actually the third way that I, that I um, address issues of st- cultural stigma and practices. It allows us to maintain a stance of humility. You know, I, the, one of the biggest things is I ask myself is, am I losing curiosity in the client at this particular time? If I'm losing curiosity, something has been triggered in me. It's about me and not the client. Because the reality is I, I will never know anything, like everything about this person. Um, and so, you know, I always try to maintain that sense of curiosity of getting to know more, getting to understand more. Uh, and I think that takes us out of autopilot. It takes us out of reacting based off past situations, but really puts us in the framework of meeting someone new and fresh in that situation, because each, each time we meet is different. You know, even talking to you now, podcast number 17, it's, you're a different Shaliza than podcast number one. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, you talked a lot about the idea of, you know, culturally relevant therapy. And also, you also spoke about the lack of, you know, men of color who are therapists. And, you know, we also talked a little bit about racialized men. And I I wonder if I can just kind of ask you a little bit about that before I kind of get into, I really want to know more about your approach. But why do you think it's important for racialized men to seek support? I mean, you mentioned a little bit of that stigma piece, as well as if you can tell us about this idea of normalizing trauma narratives within communities of color, and if those two go hand in hand. Yeah, I, you know, I think, I think if we focus on the trauma piece, I think it'll it'll probably start to illuminate a lot of the the other parts of it. Because there's a lot of trauma in racialized communities. You know, there's a lot of ways that, that that trauma has been imposed on us. It's been reinforced within communities sometimes, even as a way of just coping, of getting by. Um, so I think it helps to just, just talk about trauma for a second. When it comes to trauma, I think a lot of people, and I got excited there. I got my tea. I'm like, ooh, we're going to talk about trauma, <laughs> which is it's good to have a little bit of playfulness around difficult topics. I think that's that's what I keep reminding myself because um, 
that's uh, yeah, these are heavy conversations. So it's good to sometimes be able to have a bit of play. When it comes to trauma, I think a lot of people don't don't really know what trauma is, quite frankly. And and there's so much that you know I'm still learning about what trauma is, and you know, learned as part of doing this program, as part of seeking clients, and doing ongoing training. But when we think about trauma, we, we often think about really shocking things. So we think about war, rape, sudden accidents, of, you know, where there's body disfigurement or loss of mobility. We associate trauma with that. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people have a picture, an idea in their mind of the, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual Diagnosis of PTSD, Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And that's what I'd refer to as single incident trauma. But there's a whole other sphere of trauma that isn't talked about as much. And this is, this is developmental trauma. So this is where there's a breakdown in our environment. I think we talked about this a little bit before ACEs, um, Adverse Childhood Experiences. So uh, the, is it okay if I go into that just for the listeners? If there's a... Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Please take them on a journey. Sure. So, yeah, there, there's a 1980s um, study. Uh, someone, it's, it's the uh, it's Kaiser Permanente's Obesity Clinic in San Diego, California. And if you have your folks fact-checking me after, that's great. I, you know, I think I got the details on this somewhere in the back of my mind. But, um, yeah, so it's a weight loss clinic. Uh, and it was geared towards patients who are between 100 to 600 pounds overweight, and they were wanting to lose weight. And so participants started going through this clinic, but uh, an issue arose. So more than 50% of patients dropped out of the program before completing their weight loss goals. And the strange thing is, here's the kicker, they were losing weight when they dropped out. They were well on their way to meeting these, their goals. So why self-sabotage? And in the follow-ups, what, what the team found is that most of the patients had a history of childhood sexual abuse. So being overweight wasn't actually the problem. What these participants disclosed is that it was a protection for them. It was a way of making their body unattractive so that they're less likely to attract sexual attention. So the very thing that was killing them, literally, the ob obesity, like severe obesity, was a method of self-preservation. It was a way that they kept themselves safe and eating gave them an ability to avoid some of the distress by having some comfort. So when fear, anxiety, and shame would come up, you know, from losing weight, when they would start to, to see the body image that they, they wanted, they felt they didn't deserve it. And they also felt in their bodies more threatened. So learning, you know, the, the coping mechanism of binge eating was, was a way of relieving that internal distress, which interesting side note, I'm not sure if it re relates and maybe someone can look into this, um, but 95% of our serotonin is actually produced in our gut, not in our brain. So it would be interesting to know if there's some contributing factor there. But yeah, the point is they were getting better and it was making them feel more unsafe. And what this, this landmark study led to is many other studies where we've now fleshed out um, these factors we call ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. So what we know, and I'll, I'll go through the factors, but what we know is that when folks have more than one of these ACEs, the more of them that they have, the greater likelihood it is that they're going to have um, mental health issues, physical dis uh, stress in the body, leading to nervous system issues, um, leading to you know, earlier health issues, greater likelihood of cancer, heart disease, uh, high cholesterol, it disrupts your immune system, your metabolic response. So all of these health, physical and mental health issues stemming out of factors from early childhood. And just to run down you know, that list really quickly, because I think a lot of people don't recognize some of these signs, um, emotional abuse. So being gaslit, being told your feelings and your inner world don't matter, being you know, belittled, humiliated, or threatened, um, the second one is physical abuse, being hit, grabbed, slapped, pushed. And this is a big one I see in racialized communities where there's a narrative that exists of, oh, I, you know, I was, I was spanked, but it wasn't that bad, um, kind of justifying some of that, that um, abuse, which we know has, from many studies, has serious mental health consequences for people. Um, sexual abuse, not just sexual intercourse, but also touching in a sexual way. Emotional neglect, so feeling like nobody in your family loved you, or you know you didn't feel like you mattered, or you felt like you had to get by on your own. Uh, physical neglect, not having enough to eat or enough to meet your basic needs, 
And then some of the ones we would typically think of, loss of a parent through either death, separation, divorce, uh, domestic violence, family members with an addiction, mental health illness, or incarcerated. And then things like intergenerational trauma, racism, cultural trauma. So we, we know quite literally that environmental breakdown at a young age leads to a lot of these health and mental health issues. And I, I just want to be clear, I call it environmental breakdown because there is a, a, a narrative of parent shaming and parent blaming that exists. Um, the idea that poor parents have just make terrible decisions, but these are systemic factors like we've been talking about. These are factors that are contributed to by broader circumstances. And so I always refer to it as environmental breakdown. Something went wrong in the caregiving environment that often isn't about one person, but is usually about a set of broader dynamics. So all of this just to say and to summarize, you know, trauma isn't one single incident. It can be, but it's often also a breakdown in the environment. And, and that can be summarized as anything that's too much, too soon, or too little for way too long. And, and I think this is such an important distinction to make because many of us are now getting familiar with that third one, too little for way too long. We've had um, two years, two plus years where uh, you know the pandemic, a lot of us went with too little connection, too little affection, too little touch and warmth for way too long. And it's my personal belief that we're, we're living in a, the after effects of that, which is a deeply traumatized society. So the more people can recognize that trauma just isn't about these single incidents, but it's about often a lack, a lack of our needs being met. I think the more we can start to really have conversations about what healing looks like. I think it's so important that you talk about that because just even talking about some of the trauma narratives supports in that normalization, right? Because we don't talk about it enough. And I think just having conversations or dialogue, and I think you do run some group therapy sessions as well, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not um, doing group therapy right now, only individual and couples, but but one day. <laughs> okay. One day. Yeah. Because the group sessions are really good too, to hear from other people. Um, and also I think it is helpful to see people who look like you. I know, <clears throat> I know for me, I always want a therapist who has some sort of shared experience to me. And I hear you say that doesn't have to be the same culture or background, but there is something to say when you kind of share that background, right? And so I think that's a really important piece as well. A hundred percent. And yeah, that it's it's difficult sometimes to enter into groups to trust, especially when when trauma is um, intergenerational and can be often group related trauma. But um, I totally agree with you. Having groups with with folks who have that similar similar shared experience is is such an integral part of healing because the reality is you know as their individual therapist one on one we're sometimes limited in what we can do and and it helps to have those factors outside of therapy such as having a support group absolutely and i think what i want to kind of dive into now is this area of expertise that you've sort of spoken about a little bit which is relational embodiment can you tell us more about how we can use our experiences of self and others to heal trauma. Tell us about what relational embodiment is and how we can use it. Yeah, so so I, I draw on an integrative approach in therapy and I, I use um, two aspects. One of them is a relational psychodynamics, sometimes called relational therapy, and the other piece is embodied therapies such as somatic awareness. Um, so maybe I'll start with the, the first one, uh, relational therapy. So relational therapy is an approach that focuses on how our past relationships and experiences shape the way we relate to ourselves and others in the present. And rather than just focusing on the individual, like I mentioned, for example, some of the more cognitive-based therapies that focus on changing your thoughts or thinking differently, um, which do have their value in place, but rather than that, relational therapy looks at the dynamics between individuals and focuses on how our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviors are influenced by our interactions with others. Maybe just to give an example, um, you know, think of your relationships like a dance. Uh, does anyone tango still these days? I don't know. Or is it like, is it all twerking? Not, not that I have anything against twerking, but just, just to say, yeah, it's like a dance. So imagine you're, you're dancing with different partners throughout your life. And each partner has their own unique style, steps, and the way that you move together creates a dance pattern, a rhythm. 
And that reflects on the dynamics between. So these dance patterns can be influenced by your past experiences. So using that example of, you know, emotional abuse or emotional neglect, um, let's say you grew up with a parent who is critical. They never seem satisfied with your achievements. They always compared you to others. And when you turn to them for affection, for love, they were cold or logical or analytical. This might mean that your earliest dance partners were commenting on how poor your steps were, questioning why you chose to step there or getting angry at you like, oh, when are you going to learn to dance better? And so this experience, it, it shapes your style of dancing, your relational dynamic by creating a pattern. It could be a pattern where you seek approval from others all the time and you fear criticism or rejection, or you put up a wall between yourself and someone else, um, or you, know, you feel anxious and doubt your worth in relationships. or even the people-pleasing, that's a big one, right? Uh, People-pleasing to try and reduce conflict and get love and approval. So relational therapy looks at how these patterns repeat themselves, but what it also does is it, you know, looks at how those patterns can heal. So the patterns might repeat themselves subconsciously. You might find you're, you're drawn to a dance partner who has similar traits that you've experienced before and you can't quite put your finger on it. You know, I hear people saying, I keep getting into the same relationships. Um, but what we do in therapy, in relational therapy, is we learn a new dance. So in therapy, you know, myself and the client, we're dancing together. We're doing our own dance. And if I've done my own internal work, I can show up as a healthy, supportive dance partner. So when you share parts of yourself with me that are vulnerable, parts that were typically met with shame or criticism, you find you get a different step from me. You know, you might get encouragement, you might get acceptance, you might get understanding. And it seems small, but that subtle shift, what it does is it actually starts to teach people at a very uh, bodily level, an internal psychological and embodied level, that there's a different way of dancing. And what ha- starts to happen over time is you actually, initially what feels scary, dancing a different way, starts to feel comfortable. And then you actually start to believe, hey, maybe I'm a better dancer than I thought. Maybe I'm worth dancing with someone who's treating me better, you know, someone who's dancing my tune instead of the tune that I was expected to dance to growing up. So that's in a nutshell, relational therapy is really about undoing some of those early relationship patterns and and um, relearning a new way of feeling safe and a new way of feeling fulfilled. Questions about that? Or can I dive into the second piece? Yeah, I think dive into the second piece. I think it's it's really exciting and interesting. And I love your metaphor of the dancing. So I'm just listening please go ahead yeah awesome um yeah so the the other approach i draw on is is a lot of um somatic work so somatic work it's an approach to therapy that's that's grounded in in an understanding of the way trauma is stored in the body and the way our emotional experience can get stuck in the body and i think this is where it helps to get provide a little bit of the technical background so people can understand a bit what i'm talking about so, so somatic work, it's an approach to understand how our nervous system responds to different situations. So um, I'm going to do like a big oversimplification and just say that we, we, our autonomic nervous system has two main circuits. It has, the, it has the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, which is composed of the ventral vagal and dorsal vagal nerves. So we can think of this parasympathetic ventral vagal, dorsal vagal, as three different pathways in the nervous system. And they're all responsible for many different things, but can be sort of summarized as um, having three primary responses. So the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for our fight or flight response. It activates when we perceive a sense of threat or danger. So, you know, imagine you're walking alone at night and suddenly you hear a loud noise behind you, or you're walking with a friend even, you know, you hear and you both jump your heart start racing, your muscle tenses up, and you feel a sense of fear. That immediate response is triggered by the sympathetic nervous system, and it's preparing your body to either face the danger, so fight, or run away, flight. That's one we commonly hear about. The parasympathetic uh, nervous system branches, so the ventral vagal, um, the ventral vagal is your kind of safe and social response. So when we're in our ventral vagal state, We feel safe. We feel connected. So, you know, if that you turn around and that garbage can can that just fell over, you realize it's not a threat. Your body starts to relax. It goes back into the ventral vagal state. 
and you return to your conversation with your friend. You feel calm again, you feel connected again, you resume chatting. Sometimes if you know the threat or danger is really overwhelming, we go into the dorsal vagal state. So this is a, the freeze or shutdown response. Um, it usually occurs when we feel overwhelmed, powerless, or disconnected. And it's kind of like pre- playing dead, if you ever see an animal do that in the wild. So our body shuts down, we feel immobile, we start to withdraw, we feel, feel really disconnected from what's happening around us. And this is another way that our, our nervous system protects us. So it's a major oversimplification, but it could just be said that we have the three branches. The, our ventral vagal is connection to our outer world, including social connection, safety. Our sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight and our dorsal vagal is shut down or freeze. So somatic work, um, polyvagal theory, it it highlights the importance of of our nervous system being able to move between these states. So when we have a healthy nervous system, naturally we can go between these states. We can get startled and surprised, go into that fight or flight response, but then realize things are okay and we can move back into connection or safety. Or we can have like a really shocking thing happen, shut down temporarily, and then go back into the agitation and then into the safety. So we can move through those states. Now, I want to take this back to something we talked about earlier, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. For someone that grew up in an environment with few or no ACEs, if their environment was predictable, supportive, you know, if you felt affirmed, encouraged, um, the world was a safe place for you growing up, you're going to be in a ventral vagal state pretty often, and your nervous system is going to be able to move you through regu- regulation when something happens. So let's say that's that's who you are, and you go out to give a presentation and you get criticized by someone. It might hurt in the moment. You might go into that anxious kind of agitated fight or flight response. You feel sweaty, uncomfortable, but you'll go through the cycle. You'll have what we call an emotional completion. You'll go, oh, that really hurt. And then you'll go back to eventually feeling calm, you know, and it may take an hour or two, but you'll get there. You'll get back to that state of connection. But imagine now someone growing up where many years of their life, their formative years, they've had many of those aces present. You know, they've been criticized constantly. They've been hit. They've been abused or gaslit. Your nervous system might have never had a chance to know safety, to know regulation. So it can get stuck in these other responses. So for example, if we think that the sympathetic response where you're in a state of fight or flight, if you constantly had to be in that state growing up, because you know, one moment your, your um, environment was predictable and the next you know, your mom or your dad was freaking out, you learn, you internalize, oh no, I have to stay in the state of fight or flight because that's the only way I can stay safe. So our nervous system can get, can get stuck in that state and then that same thing that, you know, to one person, you know, doing a presentation, yeah, it's a little nerve wracking, nobody really likes it, and getting a bit of criticism sucks. To another person where they've had a lot of these ACEs, you can, you can have a meltdown, you can have a panic attack, it can become too much for your nervous system. Or if we think about that dorsal vagal, the shutdown, you know, you can literally shut down, you can withdraw from people, disappear for months on end. And friends around you who might have had a, a less um, stressful or distressing upbringing, you might look and say, why'd you do that? You know, I don't get it. It's not a big deal. It's one person who said something critical, but to your body, it physically feels like a threat. It feels like something bad is going to happen to you. So in the somatic work that we do, you know, the, the reason that we bring the body into this is because healing trauma isn't just about talking about it. Um, you know, the trauma narratives are great and it's good to be able to share, but it's also about creating a safe and supportive environment where we can explore how our body regulates, how it gets back to a state of safety and connection, and which state we might be stuck in. Um, you know, where those energy, uh, energies of our body, of our system are stuck, and how we can feel into that more. Because our, uh, we, we have a lot of research now that shows that you know, our emotional experience isn't just stored in our memories and our brain, but it's also stored in our body. And, you know, for the, the neuroscience geeks out there, um, you know, a lot of our, our, what we experience, what we process goes through our vagus nerve, it goes through our basal ganglia, ganglia which is like deep in our brain, before our cortex, central cortex even begins processing it. So before we cognitively are able to analyze what's going on in the situation, our body is already having a reaction to it. So 
what this look, what this looks like in therapy, one of the things that we do is we very gently begin to explore bodily sensations. When things are starting to get triggered, we, we start to feel into what's happening in the body. Um, because for, for me, with my approach, you know, I don't look at anxiety or depression as, as a, um, a problem. I look at it as a symptom. It's a messenger that somewhere in the system, in the nervous system, in the body, there's a state that's stuck and there's an emotion that needs attention. There's something that needs to go through that completion response so we can get back to that state of regulation. I think it's really important just to note, though, that this is a gradual process. Um, you know, if, the, if folks have had trauma, I don't recommend doing a lot of this work on your own because once we start feeling into our bodies again, it can become really overwhelming. Uh, one of the areas that I hear this with a lot as a, as a meditator, as a Buddhist practitioner, is folks who go on retreat and they have a panic attack. And they don't understand why. And oftentimes, a lot of religious communities aren't equipped to deal with that. But often what's happening is it's the first time that they're left alone with their bodies. And the moment they start feeling into that, feeling into the breath, the physical sensations, there can be a flood of those emotions that start to come out that haven't had a safe space before. And so their, their nervous system can react. It can say, even though I'm in a safe environment, this is a threat right now. So I always recommend you know, doing this work with support. Doing it, You mentioned group, Shaliza. Doing this in group, in a supportive group, is so valuable to have you know, physical touch of like someone else there supporting you um, makes such a big difference. But yeah, I, I, I just talk about this to say that I think you know, bringing the body into therapy is so, so important to, to really healing some of these deeper wounds. Thank you, Tristan. I really appreciate that. And, you know, some of the takeaways is like that relational approach with your therapist and thinking about your own relationships and then feeling in your body and really being attuned to that. And um, also, you know, using professionals to support you and guide you through that. And my last question is really, what advice do you have for our listeners who are looking to take the first steps in seeking that professional support and healing? Yeah, I, th I think there's a mix of some practical things that folks can do now and some things that, you know, may, um, it may trigger wanting to reach out to a therapist, but maybe to start with the, the practical tips. Um, I think one of them is around engaging in some reflective questions and some journaling around this. So starting to ask yourself, you know, if any of this resonated with you, what did you have to do to stay safe and get praise growing up? What did you have to do to get affection? Um, stay out of the limelight? Did you have to fight and be aggressive? People please take care of others' emotions or maybe be successful, you know, in, in, in sports or academic pursuits. And as you start to reflect on that, asking yourself, how might this still be present in your life? How might these strategies be present? How do they show up? And where do they help you? Where do they serve you? But also, where might they be causing distress? So just really starting to get curious about, about that. I think the second piece is starting to get curious about your, your inner world, you know, your emotions, your bodily sensations. Um, there's a really great resource online. I have no affiliation. It's a, a woman called Lindsay Brahman, and she has an emotion, sensation, feeling wheel. So it's a wheel like some of these emotions wheels that maybe Shaliza you've seen before where it has a set of emotions or feelings on it but it also has physical sensations and how they pair with those emotions. And so, um, yeah, looking up a resource like that and using it to start asking yourself, you know, when a particular circumstance or situation that's causing you trouble comes to mind, what are you feeling in your body? What are you starting to, what, you know, what emotions are you starting to notice coming up and what, what does that feel like physically? I think the third one is, uh, doing a grounding exercise. And I, I will, um, provide you with a, a link, Shalise, if you could put it in the show notes that I'll, I'll have to one of these on my blog that goes through a few of these grounding exercises. Um, but since we're nearing the end, I think if you, if, you, if you have a moment, we could do it together if you're interested in this. I can try for sure. <laughs> sure, yeah. And if you don't want to, please, you know, feel free to tap out. I think having choice, as I said, that's always the most important thing. So this is the uh, five, four, three, two, one technique. Uh, it's a grounding technique, and maybe maybe you heard of it before. So the first thing that I would say is just checking in with your body. Um, and you don't have to tell me. You can have like an internal marker, but just kind of like you know, where is your energy at right now? 
And for me, I'd say I'm like an, at an eight because I'm feeling super excited. We're having such an engaging conversation around trauma. Um, but just noticing that. And then what we can do together is just looking around in your environment and seeing if there's five things that draw your attention. And maybe there isn't five, maybe there's only one or two, but just looking around and noticing where your eyes stop. If you're like scanning your room and they happen to stop on something. Like for me, I have a, a, a book that I'm reading and I love the color of the cover. So I notice my eyes are drawn to that. And then I notice my partner's pencil case is sitting in the corner and it's got flowers on it. So for some reason it's delightful and it's giving me a little bit of joy, but I notice that. And so no, no pressure to find something specific, no pressure to analyze it, but just, you know, looking around and noticing what catches your eye. And then the next thing is, is four things you can touch. And so again, maybe you don't have four, but for me, I have one thing. I have a, a rock that's sitting in front of me right now, and it's got a really cool, smooth sensation. And so just touching that and noticing, noticing what it feels like to have that tactile sensation of touching an object. And then going to three things you can hear. So right now it's really silent in here for me, but I do hear um, a low buzzing in the background. There are some birds. And it could be sounds you imagine that you want to think about, you know, like for me, I love the sound of wind blowing through the trees. So just imagining that sound of that rustling. And then if you have one or two things you can smell, I have some incense here. It's sandalwood, it's one of my favorites. I find it so grounding. And then lastly, one thing you can taste. So I have a cup of tea and I'm gonna model some good behavior by taking a sip. And when you're done that, just checking in again, you know, what's your energy like in your body? So I, I was a hyped up eight now, and I think I've come down, but it's actually in a good way. I'm actually at a calm five. I think I'm a little bit more relaxed. I think I came up a bit. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> you came up a bit. Just being aware of my body. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so what that does, is, you know, there's quite a bit of research on this. It reconnects us to our senses again. We, we have a tendency to go through our day super, super busy and, you know, we're in our heads a lot of the time and just coming back to our body, it lowers our heart rate. It actually has a calming effect. Um, so this is another one I would say, you know, having a grounding technique of some sort that you can work with, um, even if, you know, you don't feel you need therapy or you're not at that stage yet, just having something that you can turn to on a daily basis to kind of bring your nervous system back into relaxation, so, so helpful. Um, the last two tips I guess I'd leave folks with is one is the values exercise. So again, I'll give a, a link to that on my blog. Um, but I do, I do a version of values exercise called an embodied values exercise. And so again, it's feeling into what values are important to us. And you asked a question earlier, she is a really great question just around like, how do folks actually find therapists who are, you know, supportive, who, who match with us, who mesh well, um, doing one of these values exercises can be a really helpful precursor because when you reach out to a therapist, you'll already have an idea of some of the things that are you know, important to you and be able to ask questions around that, you know, to say, these are my values, these are what I'm aligned with. How do you work with that? And I guess the last tip is really, you know, where trauma is involved, as I said, really working with a, a, a registered professional such as a psychotherapist because um, you know, there's some of this work we can do on our own. Having these grounding exercises is really valuable to do on our own. But when we begin to delve into the contents of our nervous system, of our psyche, we don't exactly know what's going to come up or how fast it's going to come up. So having the support to be able to go into these things slowly in the, the somatic experiencing world, it's often called titration or pendulation. Uh, in traditional psychodynamics, it's like the ebb and flow between um, between different states. It's an oscillation between our inner and outer world because we, we can't stay in our inner world all the time. That's when these emotions become overwhelming. 
but we also can't stay in our outer world all the time. That's when we become enslaved by the environment. We're constantly reacting to everything around us rather than understanding what's really driving some of those reactions. So always recommend when, when trauma is involved or any of these really heavy things that we've talked about, you know, having a therapist to support and asking questions, asking questions of them. What's their experience working with their particular issues? What do sessions look like? How frequently do they see folks? Um, so yeah, that, that's my biggest tip, I would say. And if, if folks are looking for someone, I am taking on clients, so they can always visit my website and schedule a, a free consultation call to, to put me on the hot seat and ask me some of those questions. Thank you so much, Tristan. Yes, definitely. So folks, if you want to get in touch and learn more about Tristan's work, we will have links in our show notes and you can head on over to his website to book a consultation and learn more. And thank you in advance for some of those links you'll share for us to, for some work that folks can do at home on their own. And as always, as Tristan pointed out, if you are experiencing any trauma or any um, episodes, please do seek professional support and we'll put some links in the chat uh, and the show notes about that as well. But Tristan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your journey and, uh, you know, how you kind of went from this career trajectory that is so different, um, but still in the service of others, which I think is really commendable and talking about your approach. So really appreciate having you on our podcast today. Thanks for having me, Shaliz. It's my pleasure. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Curated Conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and share this podcast. Subscribe at our website, curatedleadership.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also stay connected with us on Instagram at Curated Leadership. And don't forget to download our free EDI glossary and subscribe to our newsletter for even more resources on leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time on Curated Conversations.